Turn in your Bibles tonight to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. Last time we, we saw this incredible prayer of Nehemiah, just this amazing man that uh, has, is sold out, was sold out, and gives us an example of someone who uh, we can model. And tonight uh, we really begin to dig into the life of Nehemiah and tonight principles of godly leadership. And there's a bunch of them in here. It is incredible to me that one man living so long ago can have such an impact today. But uh, this particular book is, has been the background for I don't even know how many other books about leadership and certainly leadership seminars and all kinds of things. I myself have taught a couple of Bible college classes based on it. Um, but it is amazing when you break down uh, the life of Nehemiah as we begin to see it unfold here in chapter 2. And before we dig into the word tonight, let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, as we draw near and open up our ears to hear what your voice would say tonight, we pray that you would instruct us. And though, Lord, certainly these principles are for leaders, they're also for all of us as the church. Lord, because if we lead nowhere else, we lead in our homes. Uh, if we lead nowhere else, we may lead at work. If we lead uh, nowhere else, perhaps it's just that one other person whose life we're able to touch with our life. And so, Lord, they really are for each of us. More importantly, for those of us who are in leadership, God, that you would cause us to model these things. We pray that you would bless us tonight. Just encourage us. I pray that your people, we as your church, would be encouraged and lifted up and built up as we understand the effort that you've put forth, Lord, to, to bring your will and your purpose about in this world. And so, God, we bless you. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king, and now I had never been sad in the presence of the king before, and therefore the king said to me, oh, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing more than sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my fathers, the tombs, lies waste and its gates burned with fire. And so it picks up on what we know from chapter 1 was the news that Nehemiah had received. And as I shared with you last time, when we hear that news that there is ruin uh, in the world and there's something that perhaps God could do to, to use us to fix it, uh, we then have to do what Nehemiah did in chapter 1. He wept. He mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. But I want you to be really noticing something here. It didn't stop with just fasting and praying. It didn't stop with, well, that's for someone else to do. It didn't stop with, okay, there's a great need, but, you know, what am I supposed to do? When, when you see that great need, when you see that burden before the Lord, uh, it's important to make sure that we are called, but it is also important to get working. And by the time we get to chapter 3, we're going to see that's exactly what he does. And so these amazing principles that we can find in this chapter tonight 
And, and I would show you the first thing that I really see in this. It's been almost four months since Nehemiah got the news, and he's been waiting. It is tough to wait when something so difficult has come to you. It is hard to wait on the Lord, and yet, uh, as Isaiah chapter 40 teaches us, those that wait on the Lord will be renewed in strength. They'll mount up with wings of eagles, and they'll run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Uh, it is, in fact, waiting on the Lord that causes us to receive from him not only the vision, but also the strength to move forward to accomplish whatever it is that he has for us. And so we're, we're now about mid-March uh, is the date that I believe this indicates. And in fact, uh, this particular command, as we saw in the book of Daniel, is the command uh, from which we mark the time of Daniel's vision there in chapter 9. And so from this particular time, which is March uh, 14th, 15th, 445 B.C., and if you count off those 77s, the 69 of them having transpired until the Lord came into Jerusalem, it gives us the date that Jesus actually came to be cut off and to be crucified. And so uh, this is that particular uh, command that was given to go forth and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And I, I would also share with you before we really dig in that as you look at these things, uh, it's important to make sure that you're walking in the spirit as opposed to just simply seeing the need or some type of thing that's going on that needs to be corrected. Uh, it, it is not just the need that should stimulate us, but in fact, the the call of the Lord upon our lives. And uh, whether it's the book of Exodus or the book of Ruth or the Psalms, you're going to find that very often we're encouraged to be still and know that he is God. Amen. So, so there is very definitely a place for waiting on the Lord, and we certainly see that uh, in the life of Nehemiah. And, and, you know, I don't know what Nehemiah's prayer life was specifically, but I know this. I know how it was focused because we have this record of what transpired from it. And I, I think that he probably prayed the way we should all pray, and that is, Lord, what do you have in store for me today? Because I don't really know. I, I'm, I'm learning as I get older to, to wait a little more and to just simply see what the Lord brings my way each day. And it's amazing how many things that I think I've missed uh, in my busyness at times of not waiting. And so uh, we see the Lord working in Nehemiah's life here uh, for him to wait. And it's tough. It's hard for us to do. It's hard for us to sit by and, uh, you know, just kind of let things work out. And so as we look at this, we have to remember also that Nehemiah um, was putting himself at great risk by being sad in the countenance countenance before the king. That was not something that the cupbearer was able to do. Uh, He had finally reached a point in time where he could no longer hide exactly how he felt. And so he begins to, to allow himself, if you will, to wear his emotions and and it was a God-sized project that was before him. And so he was burdened of heart and of soul. I think there's a time to wait, and I think there's also a time to act. And so it, it begins here in these first few verses with the first principle that I see, and that is for us to wait on God to answer in his perfect time. And in this case, it was the fact that Nehemiah could no longer contain the burden 
that was placed upon his heart. Very often when I'm asked, you know, well, how do you know when it's time to go to the mission field or go into the ministry, those types of things? Uh, usually my answer will something be like this. When you can no longer live your life without accomplishing that which you believe God's called you to. When you reach that place of such a burden in your heart, your mind, your soul, your actions, the things that God's called you to, that you can't contain it anymore. You know you have to go. You have been called, and and it is to you alone that God has given that message. Uh, Very often I think we spend uh, too much time working before we have waited. But once we have waited, it's time to get to work, and and that conviction comes upon us. Uh, We get at oftentimes, I know, I get impatient. And that impatientness, that that harriedness, very rarely causes anything good to happen. But I can tell you that once you get to the end of where you really uh, know God's spoken to you, you have to step out in faith. Uh, it's happened to Connie and I recently in our lives. You know, as we, we kind of thought, you know, Lord, what are you saying to us? Is it really time for me to step away from Calvary Coast to Mesa and focus here on the church? You know, there's a lot of security in, in, in kind of being on staff at one of the largest ministries in the world. And so when you step away from that, you're stepping away from that human security. Uh, but we had been so convicted of heart and mind through waiting on the Lord that this was a burden of heart. It has to be. It's got to happen. It needs to happen now. And so... Uh, God, in fact, worked in that way very recently in in my life, in our life as a family. And what happens uh, is interesting in verse 4. Notice what it says there. And then the king said to me, and I'm reading from the New Living, what do you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. I want to give you something very specific here. Second point, make sure you're relying on heavenly resources. The first thing that Nehemiah does when the king says, okay, what's up with you? What do you want? What's your plans? Where do you want to go? What do you think is happening with your God? The first thing Nehemiah does is return to prayer. Now, let me tell you what he didn't do. He didn't throw off his cloak and fall on his face before the king and begin to pray before Yahweh, Lord of hosts, the God of heaven. He, in the quietness of his own heart, said, God, here's the open door I've been looking for. You need to organize every word that comes out of my mouth from here on out because I'm going to get one shot at this. And so Nehemiah turned and prayed to the God of heaven. It was a quick, it was an instant prayer. I doubt it was audible words, but it was shot straight to the throne of God. It was that quick plea for help. And I want to ask you, do you do these kinds of things? Or do you just kind of let things unfold and then pray about them after they happen? I'm going to encourage you when you have that time in life where you're pretty sure God's opened the door and and there's an event that's about to unfold that you immediately fire a shot off to heaven and say, God, here it is, and I need you. I need you to speak. I need you to give me wisdom. I need you to give me encouragement. I don't know what to say to this king. I can tell you this. Nehemiah's life was in jeopardy at this point in time. He was stepping into a place that very few people had likely ever been with the king of Persia. The the slip of the tongue, the wrong words, and he's likely a dead man. 
You know, the king could have easily perceived that maybe he was just kind of anxious because there was some plot in his life, and perhaps Nehemiah was part of it. How come you're sad in my countenance? Remember the question the king asked. You've never done this before. Is there something weird going on here? The king may have said. And so Nehemiah, recognizing the severity of the situation, doesn't pull out his little handbook, doesn't grab his notes that he jotted down the night before on a scroll, doesn't pull out his iPad, does not pull out his smartphone, he he doesn't grab his recorder that he recorded his little message he wants to give to King Artaxerxes, but he simply prays to God and says, God, I need you now more than I've ever needed you before. And this was a man who had dedicated his life to prayer. And yet he returns to prayer. God promises that he hears those prayers, as we saw last time. He's listening. The question is, are we going to ask? His ears are wide open, going, okay, what do you want? That's the person that God actually blesses and uses. And I suspect that Nehemiah, in the quietness of his own heart, kind of tarried before the Lord. And so I ask you a question. When those things come up in your life, whose resources are you relying on? Are you relying on heavens? Or are you relying on God's? And if you're not asking God for his, then you're pretty much stuck with whatever you've got. And I can tell you that runs out really quickly in almost everything. And so we need to be looking to the Lord. It's an interesting story that I'd share with you. A man named Cameron Townsend back in 1936, was one of the very early missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Mexico. And he was heading off to an Indian village. And at that time in Mexico, because the Mexican Revolution was was heavily underway, uh, it was basically you were killed if you were caught preaching the gospel in Mexico. There was no room for anything other than Roman Catholicism. And so evangelical Christendom, Um, was definitely a no-no. And he realized that just like Nehemiah, and in fact he credited Nehemiah's words with his own way of life, he realized he needed to seek the face of the Lord in everything he did. And when he got to this little tiny village just south of Mexico City, rather than opening a church and putting up a sign that says Evangelical Christian Inside Translating the Gospel into, into Spanish, he put up a sign that said, here to help. And that's all it said in Spanish. And and one at a time, people in the village that he was in began to come to him, and he taught them how to properly irrigate their farms. He taught them how to build better homes. He, He ministered to them in very, very practical ways while spending three and a half years in prayer about how to actually preach the gospel. Now think about this. He's going for the express purpose of the gospel, but he spent three and a half years in prayer teaching people how to irrigate crops and build homes before he ever spoke a word about his actual reason for being there. Ultimately, he changed the face of that community in such a great way that the man that would be the president of Mexico, Lazaro Cardenas, came to his village And he said, I've come to find out what it is that you're about. And he said, I'm about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the president of Mexico said, I thought you were the man I wanted to see. 
You see, he, he heard the work of the gospel in the prayer life uh, of this incredible saint that simply dedicated himself to listening to God for three and a half years. He hadn't opened a church. He hasn't done anything but help people be better at farming, really. And so sometimes we think that we have to actively, you know, you, you've got that open door and you've got to pull out your Bible and go, you know, one by one down the Romans road with somebody. Can I say to you that prayer and a life lived before the throne of God is far more valuable? Some people have the gift of being able to pull out their Bible and walk somebody chapter by chapter by verse through, you know, a place that they're really going to reach out. But more people are actually able to share the gospel, which is living your life in a way that pleases God and having an amazing prayer life. Most people will have an impact that way. That's the picture we have here of Nehemiah. A third thing that I think we can draw from this chapter, and it's a huge one, don't be afraid to ask big things of God. Don't be afraid to ask big things of God. Nehemiah's in the court. He he's, could even be in trouble, but he has prayed. He has sought the face of the Lord. He's wept over his own sin, the sins of his people. He realizes he's been part of the problem. He's seeking God. Notice verse 5. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that I would ask you to send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. That is a huge thing. That's not some little tiny request. This at the time was the most powerful person, perhaps in the entire world. And he's saying, you know, I'd kind of like to be released from my duties as your cupbearer, and I really don't want to hang around here anymore. I'd like to go back and rebuild the city of my forefathers. That's big things from God. And he goes on, if that weren't enough. And then the king said to me, queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. And, and so he's continuing with this incredible request. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, as if it weren't enough for him to just simply be able to go, he said, let the letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river. So everything from the Euphrates River, which he's very near at the time, the confluence of that and the Tigris River, for about 1,200 miles across one of the largest deserts in the world. He says, give me letters to pass across all that land and ultimately make it to, to Canaan, that they may permit me to pass till I come through to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple. Now he's really getting down and down into the middle of it. He said, I'd like you to give me the lumber to rebuild the temple of a god that you don't even worship. Don't be afraid to ask big things of God. And for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. He even throws himself in on this. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand 
notice of who, of my God, upon me. Because Nehemiah had been in prayer, because Nehemiah had been bold, because Nehemiah had waited on the Lord, because Nehemiah had requested of the Lord, as the Lord answers this, got an answer from God, not just from Artaxerxes. We must never forget that it in fact is God who installs kings and counselors. He is the one that upholds them. He is the one that ultimately turns their head to the right or to the left. Those things that they think they possess, actually God possesses. And he's in control of all of it at all times. But I also would ask you to look and see that Nehemiah was very, very tactful while he was doing this. You know, he didn't really make demands. He was just simply bold. He didn't get in the king's face and go, look, you know, I serve the Lord God of hosts. And if you don't do what I say right now, I mean, God's going to smite you. And what he did was very respectfully said, you know what, sir? This is what I'd like to do. This is what I believe God has shown me. And I'm asking you for help. That's a bold request before God. And in fact, there was no reason for the king to grant this request. Because a strong Jerusalem would actually make it uh, so that perhaps they could defend themselves against Artaxerxes himself. And, And so it was also a near impossible feat that he was asking to go accomplish. Uh, In fact, he would have to reverse his own policies uh, because it was Artaxerxes that was the one responsible for stopping the work that Ezra had begun, the little bit of it that had begun, uh, on the walls themselves. And so uh, it, it is a huge thing. Nehemiah gives several things here. He gives a definite plan. He wants letters of permission of travel. He needs travel permits, visas, if you will. Uh, the king's timber and the king's time, because at that point in time, uh, the king really owned him. He needed the king's protection. Uh, he, are, are we bold enough to ask God for these types of things? Is our prayer life sufficient that we, we've been time enough before the throne of grace that we can actually say, God, I know you. Remember what we said? You can't get to know God by knowing about him. You get to know God by spending time with him. Nehemiah had spent time with God. He could ask big things of a big God because he spent big amounts of time with that big God. He knew who that God was. Notice carefully who gets the glory when we ask big things of a big God and we do it publicly. This is as public as you could possibly get. He's doing it in the court of the king. Verse 8 says, And the king granted them to me because of the good hand of my God being upon me. Nehemiah says, this, this, is, this is nothing but what God can do. God even provided uh, surprises for, for him, if you, will, if you will. There's a couple of things in here that he didn't even ask for that the king gave him anyway. That definitely is God. Amen? Then, then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent with me officers and army and horsemen, verse 9 says. So it wasn't enough that he gave him permission. It wasn't enough that he said, fine, you can have the timber. It wasn't enough that he gave him the time. He said, I'm going to send guys to protect you as well. Can you imagine how encouraged he was in his spirit? 
The next thing I want you to see, the fourth thing, very important. Because with all this faith going on, with all this tremendous asking of the Lord, this, this wondrous prayer life and all this stuff going on, one could almost get to the place that some Christians do that, okay, let's throw common sense right out the window. You know, I don't really have to think about it all because I'm just right in the middle of the Lord's will. So I'll go about my way. Notice what happens. Don't forget to use common sense, number four, verse nine. And then I went to the governors of the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent captains of the army and the horsemen with me. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come seeking the well-being of the children of Israel. And so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And so immediately the spiritual warfare begins. Immediately there there is the devil's ears perk up. Immediately there's going to be some response. But notice what he does. Nehemiah is not sitting around going, well, you know, God sent me here, so I'll just go ahead and whatever happens, happens. Verse 12, and then I arose in the night. Why do you suppose he did it in the night? Because he's using common sense. We already know that Sanballat and Tobiah are on to him, so to speak. So rather than give them any more ammunition that they might be able to use to thwart the work of God, Nehemiah is using his head. Don't forget that God has given you the combination of your brains and faith. Not just faith without brains and not just brains without faith, but both of them together. Common sense and your faith work hand in hand. And so, then I arose in the night, and I with a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. Why do you suppose he had done that? Though he himself was convinced, he did not want to give the enemy extra ammunition. Can I say to you, people who challenge Satan to a battle are just plain idiots. It is the dumbest thing on earth for you to have heard from God and then in essence begin to expose everything that you're going to do to whomever you want to talk to about it because you are giving ammunition to the enemy. Keep your stuff between you and God until it's time to get it done. You don't need to blab to everybody what you think God's told you to do. Keep it in your heart. Pray about it. Be wise and go about the things that God's called you to do without exaggerating the calling that's upon your life in the Lord. And you're going to find that you're going to have a whole bunch more uh, success in the things that you do because the enemy is not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He does not have all power. And so very frequently what I find with a lot of Christians is God's begun speaking to them, and the first thing they do is they go out and just blab the whole thing to whomever, and they give the enemy the very ammunition that the enemy needs to come against them. And so he doesn't do that. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. In other words, he's being very stealthy. He's using common sense. He's not out there with a trumpet. We're going to repair the walls. Look at me. I've come from Artaxerxes, and I have everything, and God is with me. That would be 
announcing to the enemy, hey, come and kick the tar out of me and my guys. We're going to be right here waiting for you. Just bring it on. Don't challenge the enemy that way. Use common sense. Use the, use the gifts that God's given you. It's like when people say, well, you know, I'm just going to go down there and I'm going to show them what for. That's not smart. The enemy is powerful. He knows exactly what to do to get to you, and you don't want to help him. And when I went out by night through the valley gate and to the serpent well and to the refuse gate, so he's, in essence, going around clockwise around the city of Jerusalem and viewed the walls uh, which were broken down, the gates which were burned with fire. In other words, he's reconnoitering the mission. He's checking out what he needs to do. He's not taking anybody's word for it. He's not saying, well, you know, we'll just get started in the morning. He's actually doing his own homework. He's using his head. He's taking all the gifts and talents and skills that God's given him, and he's using every last one of them effectively. Common sense. And then I rode on to the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal to pass because the rubble was so high. And so I went up by night to the valley and viewed the wall. So he goes across the valley, likely through the Hinnom Valley, over to the Mount of Olives, and he stares back at the city to get a bigger view. Do you see how he's using common sense here? You see how he's using the talents that he has as someone who can organize? He's not just looking at it from this little myopic view. From He kind of peers over the Yep, that's bad. He's getting multiple views of the project. He's wandering around making sure he has dotted the I's and crossed the T's. Sometimes I think that people get the idea that we as Christians ought to be slothful in what we do. You know, we just kind of, well, you know, God said, so let's go. There's a place for faith, but there's also a place for your brains and common sense. Don't do one without the other. And I turned and went back and entered through the valley gate, and so I returned. So he makes a 360-degree sweep around the entire city of Jerusalem. He even goes one hill over and stares back at the city to make sure he hasn't missed anything. This is a guy who's detail-oriented, and he's using everything at his disposal. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. Why do you suppose he did that? Because he doesn't know who's in the enemy's camp yet. Family of God, sometimes people ask you, well, how come you don't share more about what's going on with the entire church? Because there could well be some people in this church who do not have God's best interest in mind. And so until we're absolutely sure what's going to happen and who's going to do it and where we're going to go, we don't just start blurting things out so that the enemy has an opportunity to get to that thing before it even happens. It's a biblical process that we undertake in leadership. Didn't tell anybody what was going on because we don't want the whole plan exposed. And maybe there are some people out there that just aren't exactly on the same page. So he didn't tell the officials. I had not even yet told the Jews. He's not even telling the children of Israel what's happening yet. There's a time family of God for silence. It's part of common sense. Because human beings, being what human beings are, not everybody has pure motivation. There's an awful lot of people that just want to be in the know. Amen? You ever run across those people? And it's just like they just got to know everything that's going on. They don't want to have anything to do with actually doing it. They just want to know what's going on. And unfortunately, very often, they can actually cause problems. 
They go and they blab it to whoever, and then that next person hears about it, and before you know it, the plan never gets off the ground because it gets destroyed before it ever gets started. And so, he hadn't told the priests, the nobles, the officials, nor the others who did the work. He seizes this critical moment. He takes the time that God has given him. He uses it extremely wisely, and he begins to inspect the things that he's going to do. You see, it'd be impossible for him to motivate the workers if he did not know the task that lied before him himself. It would be impossible to motivate the workers if he did not know the task that lied before him himself. That's why there is a difference between book learning and hands-on training. Amen? You know what? I guarantee you I could read a book on brain surgery, but I guarantee you you don't want to come to me for brain surgery. Amen? I can tell you, I give you a lot of fancy numbers and, you know, oh yeah, well you're, you know, the cranium is so many centimeters thick and if you just drill through right here and, you know, it's just kind of like, I'm pretty sure I can reach in there and grab your medulla oblongata and kind of flip it up there and do something with it. Hands-on is way better. Amen? When you've done it, you know how to instruct other people. I'll tell you, I have had people that come to me that have nothing but a shingle on their wall and tried to, you know, say, well, I'll just train you how to do, they can't train you how to do anything because they don't know how to do it themselves. Nehemiah was a hands-on guy. Fifth thing, don't be a lone arranger. Call out the troops. Get other people involved is another way to look at it. He appeals to the other people. He says, you can see the ruins around you. Here they are. These are the things. It's not, you know, this is not a little tiny thing. This is something that you guys need to take a look at. Verse 17 reminds us that that they were then looking at what Nehemiah was looking at. There was no discussion about exactly how they were going to get it done, but he's simply saying to them, look, what do you think we're going to do about this? Here's what happens. Because you know what? There are going to be things that I will see, and there's going to be things that Rick sees. There's going to be things that Connie sees. There's going to be stuff that, as we look at it from different perspectives, with different skill sets and gifts and talents, guess what? We are greater together than we are alone, period. We, we have skill sets that are very broad if we bring everybody to the task. But if you have leadership that wants to do everything themselves, then very often those details get left undone. There are a tremendous amount of things that happen at this church that I don't do. That's scary. You know why that is? This principle. You can see the things around you. And so I may have a word or two of wisdom on some specific thing, but you may actually have a better view of that than I do. You may know how to tackle that problem. You may know how to do that part of the ministry even better than your pastor does. And so we need to make sure that we're enlisting the help uh, of others around us. So when I see a list, when I see something that needs to be done, I don't want to just run out there and begin to do it. That's my, that is my tendency, by the way. It's kind of the way I'm wired. Because I'm wired a little bit like Nehemiah. It's just like I see the big pictures. Get it done. But we need each other to accomplish large things for the Lord. There, that's why the body of Christ can't say in and of itself that any one part is more important than the rest. All parts are necessary. Amen?
that's when it gets time for us to all get involved. You know, otherwise this becomes a, a, a up to this point, what, a four-man show? Nehemiah and these guys that are with him, they're going to accomplish this task? They're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. How much chance do you think they have of getting that done with four people? Exactly none. How much chance do you think they have if they enlist the help of absolutely everybody who's living in Jerusalem, each one behind his own wall? Good chance. That's why the body of Christ needs to function like a body and not like just you know two fingers and a toe. Don't get much done with two fingers and a toe. A sixth thing. Be real about everything. I call this the don't hyper-spiritualize it passage. Don't pretend that it's not going to be tough. Don't pretend that it isn't going to be real work. Don't look at it and go, oh, the Lord's for us. Now, it's true the Lord is for us. But just because the Lord is for us doesn't mean we're not going to have to fight really hard to get it done. Doesn't mean you're not going to have to sweat and work and maybe give a sacrifice that you don't even think you can give. Notice verse 17, and then I said to them, and this is the presentation of this idea, you see the distress that we're in. He's not going, hey, this is going to be easy. You know, I went around the walls last night. Man, a couple of squirrels, two goats, and a chicken could put that wall back up. He's given them the real story. You see the distress we're in. How Jerusalem lies in waste. The word that's used there for waste is actually the word ruined. It lies in ruin. It's not just broken down. It's ruined. Its gates are burned with fire. And then the marvelous statement, Come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. He tells them the bad news and then says we can do it together. He's being extremely real. He's not sugarcoating a thing. Tough task. Lots to be done. But together we can make it happen. Because we and the Lord can get this done. He says that we might not be a reproach. He's appealing to the leadership. He's appealing to their sense of ownership. He's appealing to their right kind of pride. Guys, you live here. This is God's holy city. This is where your families exist. This is your ministry. And it's a mess. Let's rebuild it together. You get the picture? He's appealing to everything within them, but he's not being unrealistic about the problems that lie ahead. A seventh thing. Get people excited. You've got to get people excited about doing tough things. You walk up to somebody and go, well, you're going to lose an arm and a leg and an eye. And uh, chances are your family's going to die in the process. And I don't think we have much chance to get accomplished here because it's going to be impossible. You see, you could go too far the other way, couldn't you? You need to tell people the truth, but you also need to make sure that they understand it's God that's behind all of this. Get people excited about it. Verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God. He didn't say, 
I am Nehemiah the Great. I have come from Zushan the palace, and I have a construction company back in, in Persia, and I've built all the most large buildings in all of Persia, and in fact, I've won many awards by the Persians for building ruined cities. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, look at me, I'm great. He doesn't say, man, I've got you know just a plan here, and, and because I've been absolutely detail-oriented and I have this plan, it's not, we're not going to win because of any of that. You see the balance here between common sense and faith? You see the balance between a man who absolutely trusts God and knows he needs to work hard as well? This is so important because a lot of people exist in one of those two places, but not both. You have to have both if you want to have success in the kingdom. You've got to put your head on straight. You need to be able to work hard, realize you're going to sweat, you're going to suffer, and you also need to realize that it is God who's going to get it done. And so he says, and I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me. He, he goes right back to who's really going to get this done. It's going to be God. And I also told him the king's words that he had spoken to me. Is that not exactly the balance between faith and works? He said, I got the king's permission and I've got God's hand. I've got God on my side because I know he's in this, but I've also done everything I can humanly possible to make sure this goes well. Super important. Not just one or the other, both must be done. And so they said to me, notice the excitement. Okay, the real news is this. The city is a a reproach. He hasn't sugarcoated it. Look at the distress we're in. Now, I don't know exactly where he did this, but I'm guessing he's got a group of people, and they're standing probably in one corner near one of the gates looking out over the ruined city going, See this? This is the bad news. Isn't this just like salvation? Bad news is you're a sinner and you're heading to hell. Good news is there's grace that can save you. The reality of it is we're in trouble. This is a mess. But here's the faith side of it. God's bigger than the task at hand. And they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. You see, the assembly of these people gets excited about it. When you balance these things, people get the generous helping of both. They recognize, you know what, this is going to be easy. But if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen? You you, you see, it is recognizing there's a problem at hand. It needs to be handled, but the one that's going to handle it is God. I just need to make my hands available to him. A lot of people want to simply go do something and see if God will bless it. That's not necessarily wise. We want to make sure that God's for us so that when we get in the middle of it, we have his resources and we don't come to the end of ours. Who, going to war, Scripture tells us, does not first count the cost before he goes? You see, we got to go look, but we need to go in his strength and in his power. And verse 20 says, And the God of heaven will give us success, and we as his servants will start rebuilding. Nehemiah identifies himself with the people, and he says, Man, we can do this. It's us. Let's do it together. Can I share with you a common problem in leadership? 
It's what I like to call looking for a management position. There are a lot of people in the world who are looking for a management position. They, they want to be the top. They don't want to be the bottom. They sure don't want to be the hands and the feet. They, they just want to be the head. Nehemiah wasn't like that. He said, let us arise and build. He's going to put on his tool bag. He's going to be there next to the mixer with the mortar in it. He's going to be one that's going to get just as dirty as everybody else. Matter of fact, he's going to be the first one on the job in the morning, and he's going to be the last one to leave it at night. He's going to set the example for everybody else. He's going to be a servant. He's going to show, and he's going to lead He's going to cause them to say, you know what, if Nehemiah can do it, you know, he came all the way from Persia to come here to help us. If Nehemiah can do it, can't we? These are principles of leadership. And I want to remind you that every time the Lord tells us to rise up and build, the devil's going to say, well, let's rise up and stop it. So Nehemiah knew what he was signing up for. An eighth thing you are going to have enemies. It isn't going to be easy. You know, sometimes people only want to be engaged in the things that are easy in ministry. I can't tell you how many people have come and said, well, you know, I think I'd just like to, you know, I'd like to be a, a, a teacher. How about you change diapers first? Oh, no, no, I don't do that. How about you help, uh, you know, maybe rake up pine needles? No, 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 I don't, I, I don't do that. Can I tell you there's a lot more pine needle raking and diaper changing than there is teaching to be done? need to recognize that. And the enemy works by getting people discouraged from doing those things which seem to be menial tasks in the kingdom. That's how the enemy works. Well, you know, I'm only working in the nursery. No, no, all I did was rake pine needles. You have to view the things that God's called you to do as a calling from the Lord. Not looking for the praise of other people, but looking for the praise of the king. Verse 19, And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officials and Geshem the Arab heard about it, check this out. Are you nuts? You guys are crazy. You're out of your minds. You're insane. You came from Persia to this pile of rubble that sits here in waste with this useless bunch of people who haven't got enough strength or power to accomplish anything. You came here and you think that's going to happen and you're going to glorify God? I think the very first thing that the enemy tries to do is to discourage us before we ever move the first nail. Before the first shovel of debris is out of the way. If the enemy can take uh, a Sanballat, a Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and just look at you and go, You're crazy. You're nuts. You're out of your mind. God doesn't even work in these things. He doesn't care about Jerusalem. He doesn't want you to... Yes, you're going to change diapers in the church? Are you crazy? Are, are, are you out of your mind? You're going to do what? The enemy's won. You buy that lie, the enemy has won. 
They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? Don't you realize that Artaxerxes is the one who's allowed this to lie in ruin? What in the world is going on? You want to buy a building in the middle of Running Springs? Are you crazy? That building was for sale for $1.4 million. You don't have three nickels to rub together. That's exactly the situation when we bought this building. It was impossible. There was no way for this church to do that. So what did we do? We prayed. We sought the face of the Lord. We sought permission from the king. We said, you know what? Okay, we'll offer them half of what they're asking for it. And if our God is for us, they'll take it. Guess what they did? They took the offer. You see, you could look at it and go, hey, it's impossible. People are like, oh, you're not going to get that building. It's not going to happen. Do your homework and pray. Amen? People are going to laugh. They're going to scoff. They're going to mock. And so I answered them and said to them, God of heaven himself will prosper us. You see the balance between faith and getting busy? It's doing all the right things, but at the end of the day, it's right back to where he started before the throne of grace. Hey, God's for us. He's prospering us. Okay, Sanballat, Tobiah, you guys are powerful here. We'll acknowledge that. You've got some weight to throw around. We acknowledge that. But it's not enough to overthrow the, the will of God. And we're going to trust in him. And so I answered and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us, and therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. You see, at the end of the day, after you've done all you can, you do what God tells you to do. After you've used every brain cell you got, you've brought to bear every resource that you can think of, you believe you have the, the plan of God in hand, then arise and build. Get busy. That's how you accomplish things for the kingdom. You don't accomplish things in the kingdom by hearing from the Lord, seeing that there's ruin, doing the missions trip to go find out what needs to be done, coming back and going, "Eh, it's too tough. It's too hard. You still got to step out in faith. Therefore, we as servants will arise and build But you, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, you have no heritage here in Jerusalem. This is God's city. We serve God. We trust God. We're not challenging you to a fight. We're saying, this is God's. He said it's his. We believe him. As soon as we say rise and build, the enemy's going to come against The opposition hates it when you stand for Christ. You see, this is what this was. Jerusalem was no threat to the kingdom of the enemy as long as it lied in waste. Stays there forever, the enemy's won. But the moment it starts to go back up, the enemy's in trouble. 
The enemy knows that. He's going to come against it. The enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans, which were the land that this was, would go all the way until A.D. 70 when the Romans would finally destroy Jerusalem again. So for nearly 500 years, Jerusalem would be prospering in the Lord. It would be the place that Jesus the Messiah would come to. You see, the enemy loves complacency in the church. Loves it when we sit around and go, oh, you know, it's just too hard. Task is too big. But the moment we rise up and say, you know what? My family's going to start serving Jesus. I'm going to start doing things God's way. I'm giving up that sinful pattern and behavior in my life. I am not going to do what I have been doing any longer. I'm going to serve the Lord. I guarantee you the enemy's going to pull out all the stops to try and make you stop. When you see that type of opposition, that is your guarantee that you're going the right direction. Because as long as you're languishing, as long as you're complacent, as long as you're doing nothing, as long as you're going the wrong direction, the enemy has no reason to hassle you. The moment you begin to do great things for God, the battle will begin to rage. There's a picture here. Alan Redpath in his, in his book, Victorious Christian Service, which is a commentary that I shared with you last time, said this on page 38. He said, there's no concern in the mind of Satan about the church unless he sees a selfless Christian seeking the glory of God. Does our service to God cause Satan to worry? How much overtime has the devil put in because of you? You ever thought about that? That you're actually causing the devil to work extra hard because you are such a threat to the kingdom? He goes on to say, Have you concern for any reputation but that of the master? Or are you chiefly concerned of your own reputation? Back in the Second World War, the French mercilessly ridiculed Winston Churchill. In 1941, Churchill said this. He said, when I warned the French that Britain would fight on alone, if necessary, in whatever they did, their generals told their prime minister and divided his cabinet. He said, in three weeks, England will have their neck wrung like a chicken, some chicken, some other chicken, any chicken. Churchill went on to respond to that. He said, we'll have no truce, no parley. You and your grisly gang can do whatever you want. You can accomplish your wicked will. You can do your worst, and we will do our best. And finally, at the end of this time, as he's talking with the French foreign minister, he said, we seek victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror, Victory however long and how hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. That's a Nehemiah thing. We didn't come to lose. We came to win. We didn't come to go at it halfway. We didn't come to go off half-cocked. We came to win. We intend to win. 
Whatever the cost is, we'll pay it. Because our God be for us. And who can be against us? You see, the final thing that I see here is we have to be fully committed. We have to be fully committed. Once we've prayed and God's given us the go-ahead and he's shown us favor and we have embarked upon that journey and we've seen these things unfold before us, you need to be committed to what God's called you to do because you are going to get attacked. And if you're not committed, the first time you reach that place to where it's a little difficult, I guarantee you the, the British kingdom at the time of the Second World War was not what it was some hundred years before. They were struggling like every other place on planet Earth at that time. And Hitler's war machine seemed very daunting, I'm sure. But what Churchill was saying was, we can either shrivel up and die right now, or we can go out fighting. We're going to fight to win. That is what we need to do as Christians. I need to realize I'm in a war, and I need to fight. I need to wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm not caving into that sinful nature. I'm not giving into that habit or that behavior. I am no longer going to be governed by my flesh. I am going to make it to church. I'm going to get involved in the things that God wants me involved in. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I don't care what it costs. I'll pay that price. I want to win. That's God. That's what he asks. What made Nehemiah so successful? God was the author of his plans. He was loyal in the things that he could stand for. He used tact. He was humble. He made sure there were no surprises. He prayed. He depended on God. And he planned to win. Amen? May it be so with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your people. God, strengthen us. As we see the tasks that lie before us, let us not be discouraged. Lord, help us to plan for victory. Let us use all the resources that we have at our disposal to fight to victory. God, let us not walk blindly. Let us be, as your word declares, gentle as doves and wise as serpents. Lord, help us to have that balance between faith and works. Let us have faith that works and works that wait in faith. God, both sides of the equation. We pray that you'd bless us. Raise us up as servants of the Most High God. Lord, help us to look at tough things and say we can do it. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to be strong. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. In Christ's precious name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen and amen.